So it's good to be back with you. We were gone last Sunday and the week before on vacation, uh, but we were actually with you online watching on Facebook, though you knew nothing of it. It was a great service. If you weren't here, the youth led it with Sarah. They talked about the mission trip that they went on last summer. They talked about what God has been doing in them on that trip and since then. Um, If you didn't watch it, go and find it and watch it. You can go to wrclive.org, and that redirects you to our Facebook Live page where all of the old live videos are, so it should be the second one. It'll be after this service on that page. Find it and watch it. It was a great service. Um, And thanks to those of you who are here who helped with that. Uh, This week, though, we're jumping back now into Hebrews, where we had been for the few weeks before. Hebrews, we've been finding, is a book that was written into that first generation of the church that was for those who were growing tired with the struggle. Tired with the struggle of life, but more so tired with the struggle of faith. With the struggle of following Jesus in a world where the promises of our faith remain unseen. When we wait and wait and wait for the promises, it grows hard And yet into the struggle, the solution offered by the book of Hebrews is not a a cheerleader to cheer on the church and try to rile them up and get the energy going again. The solution offered isn't to change up the worship service and spruce things up or do some surveys and find out how we can meet consumer needs with our our church. It's not to, to reorganize things, to manage the church more efficiently and effectively. It's not to hire a younger, more exciting pastor. The solution offered is to just fix our eyes on Jesus. It's to hold up Christ and all that he is and all that he has done for us to marvel and stand in awe of. That's the solution. And this week we come to another viewpoint of Christ and come to see the better covenant. But before we turn to listen to words of scripture, let's pray and invite God to speak and to open our ears and minds this morning. Let's pray. Lord, it's in your light that we see light. It's in your truth that we find freedom and in your way that we find peace. So come and shine upon us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Do whatever you need to do to listen well to these words from the book that beats to the heart of God. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We have this kind of high priest. He sat down at the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's serving as a priest in the holy place, in the meeting tent that God, not any human being, set up. Now, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts or sacrifices. So it's necessary for this high priest also to have something to offer. If he was located on earth, he wouldn't be a priest because there are already others who offer gifts based on the law. They serve in a place that's a copy and a shadow of the heavenly meeting tent. And this was indicated to Moses when he was warned by God when he was about to set up the meeting tent. See that you follow the pattern that I showed you on the mountain in every detail. But now, Jesus has received a superior priestly service, just as he arranged a better covenant 
which is enacted through better promises. Now, if the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't make sense for us to expect a second. But God did find fault with them. Since he says, Look, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the house of Israel, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue to keep my covenant, and I lost interest in them, says the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will place my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person won't teach a neighbor or their brother or sister, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least important of them to the most important. Because I will have mercy toward their iniquity and will remember their sins no more. Now, when it says new, it makes the first obsolete. And if something is old and outdated, it's close to disappearing. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's Hebrews chapter 8, the whole thing, verses 1 to 13. If you want to keep your Bible open or open one, we'll look back at some verses and some other places in the Bible as well. If there's one word to sum up the book of Hebrews, it's this better. It uses that word more than any other book in the New Testament. Better, 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 better. When the Christians are growing tired in the struggle of faith, the author urges these first Christians not to turn back to the comfortable old traditions of Judaism because the better thing has now appeared. It's already here. We heard in the middle of this chapter that the temple or the tabernacle were just a copy or a shadow of the heavenly meeting tent that God, not any human being, has set up. There's something more real. There's something else to which all these traditions have always been pointing. It's as if we had a poster of the Grand Canyon Can you picture a picture of the Grand Canyon? It's beautiful. Uh, You can see from that picture the grandeur, the, the length and breadth and depth of the Grand Canyon. You can see the beautiful colors etched into the rocks along its edges. It's a beautiful picture, a beautiful sight to behold. But only a fool would continue to stare at that poster if they were standing on the edge of the real thing. Last week, we were uh, up in Maine, and we were staying in a little three-season cabin on the shores of Raymond Pond. It's a, a little lake. It had a dock that went out and some Adirondack chairs that sat on it. You could sit there and look out. The water was crystal clear and smooth as glass. The trees were changing color around the horizon. The sky was blue most of the time. Um, there were mallards and mergansers and herons and loons and geese and all sorts of beauty in God's creation. It was great, and I took some pictures of it to try to capture it. And looking at those pictures now is a great reminder of what we experienced, but they don't hold a candle to the real thing. Jesus is the real thing. 
Jesus is the priest to which all the priests have been pointing. Jesus is the sacrifice to which all the sacrifices have been pointing. Jesus is the sanctuary to which the temple had been pointing. Jesus is the promise to which the promises had been pointing. And this week, Jesus enacts the better covenant to which the old covenant had always been pointing. And this isn't something that comes out of nowhere. They remind us that we've been expecting this. This is one of the awesome things that Hebrews does over and over again. It holds up Jesus in all of his glory and majesty and all of his awesomeness and then says, this isn't something new or novel. Look back at the Old Testament. We've been waiting for this. We've been looking for this. It's all been pointing to him. And to look at the new covenant, the author of Hebrews points us back to a section of the book of Jeremiah. Chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. In your Bible, I hope it delineates it somehow. In mine, it's in italics. Um, Verses 8 through 12 are all just a quote from the Old Testament, from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. This is actually the longest section of the Old Testament that's quoted in the New Testament. And Hebrews quotes a lot of the Old Testament. This is the longest one in it and the whole New Testament. So it's probably pretty important. And in it, the author seeks to show us how Jesus has arranged, he says in verse 6, a better covenant that's enacted with better promises. And in fact, there are three better promises that we see in these verses that we're going to look at this morning. And the point of all of it is going to, again, hold up Jesus and help us to just see how awesome he is. That's the point of the sermon this morning. That's the point of this whole series. And in fact, that's the point of of everything, of all of life, is to see how great Jesus is and stand in awe of it, of, of our worship. That's the point of scripture. That's the point of everything. That's the point to realize and see how beautiful and awesome Jesus is, to not grow tired or weary or numb to it, to not get distracted by other things, but to just stand in awe of Jesus. Amen? So there's three better promises that we see in these verses. And the first one comes in verse 10. It says, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now in the first covenant, the law had been written by the finger of God into two stone tablets. Moses carries them down from Mount Sinai, gives them to the people, and they're instructed to follow this external law that is given to them. And they say, yes, we'll follow it. And they don't. And as they're going into the promised land, uh, Moses offers them the law again, and they say, yes, we'll follow it, and then they don't. And, and Joshua, as they're going into the promised land, says, here's the law, will you fulfill it? And they say, yes, and then they don't. And again, and again, and again, they, they break this law. And it's not just them, either. There's something within humanity where we can see a better way We know that there's a better standard that we want to hold others to, certainly, and and hopefully even ourselves, and yet we never live up to it. There's something within us that is is broken and turned in, that that desires the wrong thing. 
Paul, you know, the Apostle Paul, the, the guy that wrote most of the New Testament, who, who did more than probably anyone else to establish the, the church in the world that would go on to spread to the ends of the earth, Paul himself says, the good that I want to do, I don't. And the things I don't want to do, I do. And I don't understand it. There's something broken inside us. The hymn says it really well. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That we are prone to look at God and say, this is, you are awesome, thank you, I want to follow. And then, oh, here's this thing over here. We're just prone to turn away and to turn in. And if we are ever going to live with God and follow God's ways, something is going to have to change inside us, not outside of us. Something about what we love and desire, about how we're formed inside, is going to have to change. And that's the promise of the better covenant. That God will write the law not on stone tablets, but on our minds and in our hearts. And if we go back into Ezekiel 36, which is another um, prophecy written around the same time about the return of the people one day from exile, Ezekiel wrote this. He said, I will take you from the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and I will bring you to your own fertile land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be cleansed of all your pollution. I will cleanse you of all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove your heart of stone and replace it with a living one. I will give you my spirit so that you will walk according to my regulations and carefully observe my laws. Then you will live in the land that I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. The promise of the new covenant is that God will take out our hearts of stone and give us living new hearts, that God will write that law inside us, that our desires and our loves will be transformed, that as Ezekiel says, God will give us a new spirit to come inside and change us from the inside out. And as Christ goes up into heaven and pours out the Holy Spirit upon his followers, we see this happening. We are given God's Spirit to come inside and work on us from the inside out. We call it sanctification, being made holy. It's that journey throughout life as we follow Jesus where the Spirit works inside us by grace and grace alone to transform what we desire, what we are pointing our lives toward that throughout our lives we will come to desire more and more the good, to desire God and God's ways. We will still not live up to them, but the fruit of the Spirit will be born more and more in us and we'll find ourselves thinking and desiring God as we walk with him and as the Spirit works inside us. Isn't that a better promise? Instead of a law written outside, handed down, that we're asked to follow, that God will change what we desire, that we will want what God wants, that we will want to walk in God's ways and follow him. Isn't that better? That's the first better promise, the law written in our hearts. The second better promise comes in verse 10, or verse 11. That was verse 10. I'm totally in the wrong place. And each person won't ever teach a neighbor or their brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me, 
from the least important of them to the most important. All will know God. Again, back in the the first covenant, there was this command in Deuteronomy 6. It's called the, the Shema, which is just the first word in Hebrew. It was a section that the Israelites repeated, recited multiple times every day, and it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Keep these words that I'm commanding you today. Recite them to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Keep these words that I'm commanding you and recite them to your children. Teach them. Teach the next generation. Teach others about God and God's ways so that they too can join into the covenant and come and follow God. Teach. And yet the promise of the new covenant is that we won't need to teach or encourage one another. Know God because all will know me from the least important of them to the greatest. And this too we have seen already in Jesus. Jesus is the one we believe is all the fullness of God pleased to dwell bodily. Or as John said it, he's the word who was with God, who was God, who is made flesh and come to live among us, to move into the neighborhood. God who's come to be known, to be accessible, to be in a relationship with us. And as Jesus ascends up into heaven and pours out the Holy Spirit, we again receive a down payment on this promise. Because the Spirit is the one that Jesus said will unite us to Christ, bind us to him will remind us of everything that Jesus taught, will will be our teacher, will be our encourager, will be the one who resides in us to bring us to Jesus who shows us the Father. We begin to see this already. We have access to it already in the Spirit. And yet a day is coming, and this is the promise at the end of Revelation, when God will come and make God's home with us. When God will be our God, when we will be God's people, when we will have no need any longer of sun or moon or stars or or lanterns, because God will be our light, will be universally and immediately accessible to all. All will know God. Isn't that a better promise? Instead of scrounging through the dark to try to make sense of this world, to try to find the creator, instead of looking at the world around us trying to make some sense of who may have made this and made us and what the purpose of it all is, that all will know God immediately and universally. God will be known. That's the second better promise of the better covenant. That the law will be written on our hearts that all will know God. And the third promise is in verse 12, that all of this will be possible because I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I won't remember their sins anymore. The first covenant back at Sinai, um, that's with Moses back in the book of Exodus. The Ten Commandments are Exodus 20. It's, it's there, and then a little bit after that, it keeps going if you want to go and read about it yourself. The, the first covenant there was a two-way covenant. 
And all covenants were two-way covenants. Covenants aren't things that God invented and only show up in the Bible. Archaeologists have examples of them from all over the ancient Near East. It was a way in which people entered into relationship with each other, both equals and greaters and lessers. But they were always two-way relationships. Both sides promised something. Both sides had obligations. Both sides had roles now to play that they promised they would live up to and keep. Israel's role in the covenant, their obligation was the law, summarized in these Ten Commandments. This law that was offered to them, they were told to keep, and if they didn't keep, that there would be consequences. And yet, before Moses even gets down from Mount Sinai with those Ten Commandments, they've already broken the first two, worshiping another god and creating an idol. Before they get to the promised land, they've broken all of the rest of them. And they continue to just break them and break them and break them. And God does show mercy. God is patient. God waits and waits, gives more and more chances for them to turn back and follow God. And yet again and again, they choose to be the unfaithful spouse. Eventually, there are consequences. So Jeremiah is a prophet who, who pops up way later at the very end of the, the kingdom of Israel. Um, he's often called the weeping prophet because he has bad news and bad news and bad news. He, he also wrote the book of Lamentations that comes right after Jeremiah in our Bible. He was the one that God appointed to rise up and to tell the people that they had been unfaithful And that God's judgment was coming. And it was coming in the form of the nation of Babylon that would come and destroy them entirely and carry the survivors off into exile. And as Jeremiah offered these prophecies again and again, the people said, I don't think so. We have Jerusalem. This is God's city. We have the temple. This is God's house. I think we're going to be fine. God will protect us. And again and again, Jeremiah says, no, God's punishment is coming. He's the weeping prophet. He has bad news always, talking about the exile that will come and all of the terrible things. And yet in the midst of this book, a ray of light appears. In chapter 31, a moment of hope and promise as Jeremiah offers a prophecy of what will happen after, that a day will come when when a new covenant will take place. A new covenant that will be possible because God will choose to be merciful toward their iniquity and remember their sins no more. A new covenant that will be a covenant of mercy and forgiveness and grace. But how? How would God form a a new covenant that would only be one-sided? How would God fulfill both sides in God's self? Well, Hebrews 8 isn't the only place in the Bible, in the New Testament, that that quotes Jeremiah 31. There's actually a number of places. Paul does it a couple times, but Jesus also quotes it. Um, And you know this quote, even if you don't know that it's a reference back to Jeremiah 31. It's in Luke 22, and I want to read it for you at length. Now, when the time came, Jesus took his place at the table And the apostles joined him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
And I tell you, I won't eat it until it's fulfilled in God's kingdom. After taking the cup and giving thanks, he said, Take this and share it among yourselves. I tell you that from now on, I won't drink from the fruit of the vine until God's kingdom has come. And after taking bread, giving thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new covenant. The only place a new covenant is ever talked about is Jeremiah 31, a new covenant by my blood, which is poured out for you. The first covenant was forged through the blood of the Passover lamb, sacrificed back in Egypt, the blood put on the doorposts of the house that the spirit of death would pass over, that the people would be let out of slavery of Egypt. That first covenant was renewed daily by blood of sacrifices offered for the sins of the priests and of the people. But the new covenant would be forged by the blood of the Passover lamb, by the blood of Jesus, who enters into the heavenly meeting tent in order to offer his gift, his sacrifice, himself, to give his body and his blood for you and for me to fulfill both sides of the covenant. He is God who has come to us in grace and he is humanity lifted up finally and offered fully and rightly and perfectly to God. He is the one who's fulfilled both sides. He dies and gives his blood to establish a new and everlasting covenant of grace and reconciliation that we would be accepted by God and never be forsaken by him. A new covenant that doesn't rely on our ability to keep the law and to perform and do all the right things, but relies upon Jesus' own sacrifice. Doesn't that sound like a better covenant? Aren't these better promises? The law will be written on our hearts. All will know God fully. And the covenant will be a one of mercy and grace by the blood of Jesus. This is a better covenant because the first one depended on us. It was about our ability to do it ourselves. You know, there's something deep within each human person that believes that we need to prove our own worth ourselves. That by our lives, by our actions, by our thoughts, we need to prove that we are worthy of love and affection and belonging. We come then to God seeking to give ourselves and always fall short. There's something within us that wants so deeply and yet cannot live up to it. We want to follow the law and can't. We want to live in righteousness and obedience and yet cannot. Even at the beginning of this quote, it says that if the first covenant had been without fault, it wouldn't have made sense to expect a second. If the first one was fine, we wouldn't need a new one. But God did find fault with what? With them. 
It's not the covenant that was the problem. It was us. And this new covenant now doesn't rely on us, but only upon Jesus, who's already done it all, who now has sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, who says on the cross, it's finished because it's done in his blood. And there is no role we now need to play. There is nothing we need to do to prove our own worth and belonging. Are you tired of trying to be and do enough? We believe our worth is ours to prove. To prove to our parents or to their memory. To prove that we're enough to our kids or to our spouse or to our friends or to our employer or to our digital audience or even to God to prove that we're worthy of love and attention. And so we work ourselves ragged to show the world that we're enough, that we're talented enough, that we're good enough, that we're hardworking enough, that we're beautiful enough, desirable enough, even that we volunteer and help and are selfless enough because of the voice inside that says you aren't and you will never be loved. The voice that calls us back into the first covenant that says it all depends on you. Falling back into the lie that says that if I just obey and if I just perform and if I just do enough, then I'll belong. There's a better covenant. There are better promises. Ones that don't rely on you but rely on Jesus Christ who opens up the way, who has done it all already, a new covenant of grace open to you, not because you are enough or have done enough, but because Jesus loves you and Jesus died for you and gave you more worth than you could ever earn or deserve on your own. Isn't that amazing? Isn't Jesus awesome? Amen. Jesus, we thank you for you, our great high priest, the one perfect sacrifice, the meeting tent, the dwelling place of God among us, the new covenant of grace. Jesus, you are awesome. You are amazing. And when we really stand and look at you, we are in awe. And so we come to worship, not for what we will get out of it, but because of what worship is, standing in awe of you, who alone is worthy of our praise, worthy of our work, worthy of our lives. So Lord, come and receive those gifts that we offer by the Spirit and in Jesus, to the glory of God, who is reconciled and made us whole. It's in your name, O Christ, that we pray. Amen.
stand with me to join our voices with Christians to proclaim what it is Christians believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. 
I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.